In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Timex, the watch company, many years ago did a survey to pinpoint down to the second how long we'll wait in certain situations. They discovered that we'll wait a whopping 13 seconds at a light before we honk at the driver in front of us once it's turned green. My wife would tell you that that probably doesn't always hold up in my case when I'm urgent myself. We'll wait a whopping 26 seconds when someone leaves a seat to assume they're not going to go back to it before we slip into that seat in another place. We'll wait a whopping 45 seconds before we ask someone who's too loud on a cell phone to quiet down, and a whole 13 minutes for a table, apparently regardless of what stewards or stewardesses will tell us when we arrive at a restaurant. Their longest wait was a full 21 minutes when people will wait to dig in before the last guest arrives for Thanksgiving dinner. Timex discovered something that we really already know. We don't wait well. In fact, we probably wait even less practically these days now that we have all these means of efficiency in front of us that can distract us towards that end. And yet the season of Advent is one that calls us not only to highlight this theme of waiting, but it actually asks us to embrace the waiting, to embrace the waiting fully, not only just in the annual reminder in the weeks leading up to Jesus' birth, but to embrace the waiting daily as we await Jesus' return. That waiting becomes really kind of the holding environment by which we are formed in the likeness of Jesus, or so it should. And so this morning, I'd like for us to hold that theme of Advent waiting before us in a passage that arguably has nothing to do with Advent at all in 2 Peter, which talks about the daily waiting for the day of the Lord's return and some lessons that assist us both this time of year and every day toward that end. So if you'll turn there in your Bible or orient to it on the screens, we'll look at it together. As you open to 2 Peter, um, remember 2 Peter is, uh, is a letter that we call uh, one of the Catholic epistles. And by that we mean it's a universal letter. It's different than, say, Galatians or Ephesians or Corinthians or those that are written to a particular people in a particular place. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, Hebrews, 1st uh, and 2nd Peter, these are written broadly to the church universal. They're not written in a context, while the context of Galatians, Ephesians, and so forth are applicable to all. Um, These are quite plain. They're written uh, for topics that are on the minds of the whole of the church, for lack of a better way of putting it. And there's no more pressing topic on the mind of the church at any age than that of the day of the Lord's return. And that's the the topic in chapter 3 of 2 Peter as we open to it. And we open about halfway in uh, to this chapter in verse 8, where Peter points out, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, quoting Psalm uh, 90, verse 4, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Teeing up this this section is a reminder that um, God sees things from a different vantage point than we do. God stands outside of time because he's created time. And thus, time is not linear, not to get 
off into philosophical and metaphysical weeds here, but um, it is not linear in the way that we see it, and thus we can't hold time in the same way. Those who heard the words of Isaiah had passed several generations, some 500 years later, until they see the one emerge who prepares that way for the Lord in John the Baptist. And the reason this is important is because at this time of Second Peter, kind of nearing the end of the first wave of what we would call the apostolic generation that passes away, there's some question as to the tardiness of the Lord's return. And not just the tardiness, but there are those who are saying, well, um, Jesus, right, you guys told us, said that these things would happen in the lifetime of those who are still living, and they haven't. So maybe he's not only delayed in verse 9, but maybe he's failed to bring them about. And that's the, the pushback from those in the early days of the church. And there's this reminder that God's delay, God's pushback, lest they be reminded, those things had come to pass, um, just not all the things they had expected. The temple, both literally and figuratively, was torn down in three days in Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. The temple had been destroyed in AD 70 by this point. Many of those things had happened in the lifetime of the apostles. But the day and the hour, <clears throat> that fixed point, is one that no one knows except for God the Father, as Jesus reminded us last week and in subsequent weeks. And Peter points out, rightly so, that the reason for this, this time is that not one should perish, but all should reach repentance. In verse 15, he cites uh, Paul a little further down, who in Romans and in other places in Romans 2 verse 4 reminds us that it's God's kindness that gives us this time to reach repentance, to reach the day of salvation. And thus this time is shaped towards that end. Because in verse 10, the day of the Lord, quoting Jesus here as well, will come as a thief in the night, will come at a point in which we don't anticipate it. And when it does, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and destroyed, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. There's a lot going on there, but when we read the rest of the verse uh, 9 and 10 alongside other passages about um, the second coming of Jesus, we see that those um, moments are clear to see. When you think of, say, Revelation 21, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars cease to exist because when Jesus appears at that time, he becomes the light, for lack of a better way of putting it, and sustains all things. The times and seasons no longer are needed in that same way. But the point is that when Jesus appears, when the day of the Lord comes, all will be tested and tried, much in the way that Peter points to this burning up and dissolving, right? Everything will be put to the test. And that which um, is, is uh, not pure, will, will be burned up, and that which is, is proved and tested and will stand the last of eternity. And so really, Peter's impetus at this point is this reminder that when Jesus returns that day of the Lord, rather than fixing on the times and the moments and the signs and the moments that lead up to it, should grab our attention in that on that day, all will be exposed. And thus, thus, our waiting... Our waiting is one that should reflect the very patience of God and His long-suffering nature. Not just in our patience and waiting, but our waiting really is, is kind of an active waiting, an active preparation towards that end, a readying for that day when all things will be revealed. 
And toward that end, the whole of our lives then are not just a twiddling of our thumbs as believers until Jesus returns, but there's an active preparation that leads us to that moment which we don't know. And in many ways, perhaps the beauty of the season of Advent is we do have a fixed date that we do know. Jesus enters into the world on a day that we can pinpoint nine months after um, Jesus' annunciation uh, to Mary, right, that's fixed on the 25th. And as such, when we think about that, we know that we have that date on a calendar and we know how to prepare for it. Some prepare for it even before Thanksgiving comes, right? Lights go up, tinsels come out. Um, some, some have all these preparations that we've already done. Um, we think about the gifts, we prepare, we shop, we do all those sorts of things. It's an active waiting. We think sometimes, even months in advance, well, this is the year we go see Uncle Fred. And so we've got to look at hotels and plane tickets. The preparation is an active process. It's not just a waiting until December 24th and all things go in motion. There are those folks. But um, for the most part, many of us have a preparation that leads up to it. In a sense, Advent shows us what it looks like with a fixed point in active preparation for a day and time. And while we don't know the day of the Lord's return, we have skills that we've built annually toward that end. And so the question then should be, well, what does active waiting look like? And to that, we turn back to the text in verse 11. Peter answers this question, since all things will be dissolved, since all things will be tested and tried, in a sense, he almost poses a question, well, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, those whose lives are marked by holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening. Another way to look <clears throat> at the hastening is, is the striving for or leaning in toward the day of the Lord, uh, the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars will melt and burn. All these things um, will be purified towards the end, that in verse 13, the promise that we await comes to pass in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That day of the Lord's return will bring about the comfort spoken of in Isaiah, the moments we see at the end of Isaiah, when things that make no sense to us now come to pass, when lion and lamb lie down, when things that um, are out of sorts become sorted out in God's grand economy. And that new heavens and new earth are not a global redo or reset, but a restoration and a renewal of all things. And as such, we are to be the kind of people that are righteous to dwell therein. Our call is to one of growth in holiness of life, as Peter points out in verse 11. And thus, our, our active waiting, our preparation, should be toward that end, that we might be found at the day of the Lord's appearing as He is, as Jesus is. It's a, it's a perseverance for the household of faith to the end, and that is the work to which we are called, an active preparation that readies our lives just as John the Baptist readied the people to receive Jesus, calling them to repentance. Repentance, as you know, is a word that just means a change of direction. It means we kind of have to let go of something in order to go that way, a U-turn. It can be big, it can be small. And so our lives are to be marked by what are those areas that we need to let go of in order to embrace more fully what God plans and purposes for us. 
This time of year, I'm always uh, struck. It's been years ago now. Um, we had a young uh, neighbor uh, who was across the street. His mother texted us. She was late from work. He was locked out. Can he come hang out at your house? Yeah, sure, no problem. And he was there for a while. <clears throat> he shared and opened up about his life and, um, and a bit of his family environment. He, he had a broken home, and, and he was sharing a little bit about how his frustration as a teenager was that at this time of year, in December, it seemed like everybody just got along. Mom and dad ceased to not fight, things went well, everyone was generous with time and resources, and then January came and it was kind of like it was all out the door again. In a sense, this season is one to remember we persevere in that daily. It's not just a season where we're generous for the month of December with our time and our resources, we're kinder, we look more like Jesus, and then we tick that off and January starts and back to the race we go. In a sense, the season of Advent gives us the practice towards that end because it truly is a day-in and day-out process. And as we work on those things, as we learn to look at our calendar not through our own eyes but through God's eyes, offering our days to Him, we learn that certain things become a little more reflective at that point as we get them down. We begin to wake up and see our days as the Lord's days and not our own. Um, and then we move to the next area that he has to work on us. Every day is a honing toward that end. And all of this, all of this is really held in mind by the perspective through which we see life itself. And truly, that's where this passage ends, that, that one of perspective back in verse 14 and following in these what's deemed the final words of, of Peter at the close of his second letter. Reminds us once more, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these things, since you're waiting for this day, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We see that without spot or blemish. Hopefully you think, ah, I think I remember that somewhere. It's what we see certainly in the Old Testament code, right? Um, that the Israelites were to present unto the Lord offerings without spot or blemish, both in their crops and in their flocks and everything that they had. In a sense, they don't say to the Lord, well, I'll give you the rest. You can have that kind of totally unuseful animal, and I'll take the best. Or you can have that rather anemic-looking crop, and I'll hold the rest. Rather, God asks them to flip that. Give me your best, and in so doing, trust me with the rest. And in that way, our lives are to be patterned toward that end. And truly, that's how we find peace, arguably. And count, as we're reminded once more, this patience of the Lord as salvation, just as your brother Paul wrote you and gave you wisdom, as he does in all his letters, um, as he speaks on these matters. There are some things that are <clears throat> hard to understand, which the ignorant are unable to do and twist for their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Um, there's so much that's popping up. Nothing new is under the sun um, at this time. Not only are there those who are saying, well, the day of the Lord won't come. There are others who are saying, well, at the end of all things, everything's just kind of obliterated anyway. So this life doesn't really matter, nor does what you do in this life really matter. And on that day, we're just kind of just, you know, ethereal spirits in some quasi space and time. That was already popping up. It was a heresy in the second century called Gnosticism. Nothing new is under the sun. And so the reminder is, remain rooted and grounded in the faith. In verse 17, beloved, knowing beforehand, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and you lose your own footing, your own stability. And then, and rather an interesting twist 
as he closes. He says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in a twist on the doxology, he really says, To him be glory both now and normally, it's forever. But instead, he says, unto the day of eternity, to the day of the Lord's return, to the day of that endless dawning when the sun dawns and all is set right as he's kind of drawing back in on all these images he's pulled in, when all is tested and tried and the day of eternity is seen before you forevermore. In essence, what we're called to remember is that that perspective then should shape Oh, I never advanced the slides, sorry. Um, where we are and the way in which we view life. That becomes the lens by which we don't see four weeks out of the year, but every single day that we've been gifted by the Lord. So that our active patience and working those things out and perseverance until that day guides us until the day of the Lord's return. It reminds me, um, as I close, of a story uh, from the end of the first Iraq war, there was an uh, Air Force pilot by the name of uh, Robbie Robbins. Robbie and his crew um, got uh, notice, short notice, that he and his crew were, were done and they could return home. And so like anyone at the end of a long stint, you would imagine the next morning they got up, they flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, they land, they all pour in uh, Robbie's car and drive to western Pennsylvania where he and his crew were from. He dropped everyone off and pulled into his driveway as the sun was coming up on a new day, much to his amazement to find a banner hanging over the driveway. The banner read, Welcome Home Daddy in bright yellow. He was totally baffled. How had they had known? He'd found out only 48 hours or so before. So he goes inside to see um, everyone more or less put together and ready to go for a new day. And they are surprised to see him and, of course, greet him and rush in tears and hugs, welcome home, Dad. And as his wife approaches, he's totally confused and says, how in the world did you know? I had just found out now, you know, about 72 hours ago. Did you get a call? Did they let you know? And she said, well, no. But we knew as soon as the war ended, you would be home and you'd want to surprise us. So every day after we got that news, we decided we'd be ready. We didn't know when it would happen, but we were going to be ready for when you showed up and walked through the door. That's the frame in which we're supposed to view life. We're to be like that family, ready at any moment when Jesus arrives. And Advent gives us a reminder that the beginning started when Jesus stepped into the world, as we remember in two short weeks now, hard to believe. But that day set in motion what will come to pass, as Peter reminds us. And thus, that perspective holds in frame for us this active waiting and perseverance to the end. The question is, where can we grow? Where can we be more ready? Where can we reflect him, not just for our own sake, but so that others might be ready to welcome him on that final day as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.